Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. I'm Shally Pittman filling in this Monday for Douglas Haynes. Hey, is it me or does it seem like nothing is working like it should? or at least like the foundations of our lives, are getting pretty tenuous. For most of us, it's hard to find a good job and make ends meet. It's hard to find an affordable place to live, much less buy a house. Basic access to medical care is elusive, and it can feel quite exhausting to fulfill a lot of our basic needs. Our rates of mental health issues, like depression and anxiety, are skyrocketing. In short, it's hard to feel secure in this world, no matter who you are. Financial insecurity, political insecurity, there's existential insecurity about our place in the world. But that individual feeling of insecurity is something that we rarely talk about in public. But today we're going to talk about it on A Public Affair. Insecurity is what our guest today says is the defining feature of our time. Now, Astra Taylor is our guest. She's a writer and a documentary filmmaker and a public intellectual whose body of work examines really big ideas like... What does the digital age mean for our culture? What are the paradoxes inherent in a democracy? And now she's out with a new series of public lectures, along with a companion book, urging us to take a closer look at how capitalism is driving our lack of in- lack of security. By acknowledging those systems, we can organize for a better world. The lectures are called The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Astrid Taylor's previous books include Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. Her film films include Examined Life, which features conversations with contemporary philosophers outside the classroom, along with Zizek, very candid conversations with philosopher Slava Zizek. Her 2018 documentary, What is Democracy?, travels through millennia to examine contemporary problems and paradoxes of democratic thinking. Her work has appeared in many journals and magazines, including The New York Times, The Nation, The Intercept, The New Yorker, The New Republic, and so on. You could call her an activist, though she might reject that label in favor of being described as a movement builder. She was involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement and is a co-founder of the Debt Collective, a debtors union that's had success in the push to eliminate student debt. She plays a variety of instruments and has toured for years with the band Neutral Milk Hotel. Astor Taylor joins me today ahead of a public talk next week through the Havens Wright Center for Social Justice. Astor Taylor, thanks for coming on A Public Affair. Thank you so much for having me and for that kind introduction. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it. Hey, it's been a really busy year for you. You seem to have a lot going on all the time. Uh, you kind of seem like you're someone who never stops moving. How are you doing today? I'm actually doing okay. It's funny you say that because I, I'm not a big mover physically. So I'm actually like so many people trying to change my habits with the new year. So I just went out for like the third jog, the jog of my life. So trying to move in different ways um, uh, because so much has been tying me to my desk with just 
so much happening politically uh, the de- and the debt collective, which is the union for debtors you mentioned, just growing by leaps and bounds. Um, so there's always, always lots of stuff to do. And I'm actually feeling, you know, pretty good personally, um, but, but really distressed about the state of the world and, and, you know, the, the, a lot of the news and the images that are coming in through my media feed these days. Yeah. Well, that actually dovetails into what we're talking about today, some of that kind of um, stress, anxiety, or as you kind of term it, insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're that's what we're going to spend today talking about. Um, you're joining us, though, the, the, the news hook, the reason we have you here uh, is to talk about your newest work, which I mentioned, it's called The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. And if you are going on a jog or a run, I have good news for you. You can listen to these um, because it's an acclaimed lecture series put on by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called the Massey Lectures, and you are the 2023 Massey Lecturer. Now, I had never heard of these, uh, but it seems like a really high honor to be invited to give these talks. Um, You travel across Canada giving a series of lectures on a theme. Um, Past lectures have been the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, Doris Lessing, Noam Chomsky, Margaret Atwood. So I wanted to start off by asking you, what has this honor been like? And, uh, you know, we chatted a little bit before the show, but how did that process unfold for you? It was such a tremendous honor. I, I, did not anticipate ever being invited to give the Massey lectures. I'm I'm Canadian. I grew up in Georgia, so in the American South, but I'm Canadian and um, had a bunch of the Massey lectures in their their book form because they're often published um, as books, as you as you mentioned in your introduction. So I grew up reading uh, Chomsky's Necessary Illusions or Doris Lessing's Prisons We Choose to Live Inside. Margaret Atwood actually wrote um, what uh, did her lecture series on debt. It's a book called Payback. Uh, and these are, um, you know, te- cultural touchstones. And so I was just absolutely flabbergasted when they asked me to um, be part of this series because I do a lot of stuff. I mean, you read my bio. There's a lot of books, a lot of movies, but you know, I'm not a PhD. I don't have a an institutional backing. I'm ultimately a rabble rouser. I mean, I care about building my, you know, building political power with my comrades. And so I, I see myself as kind of an outsider. So I was really um, surprised and honored and uh, and said yes, and then had to uh, write a book, a short book, but a book in about four months because they like to have the books printed when you go on tour. Oh. Um, and so I, that meant that I had to pick a topic that uh, I was ready to really dig into. And um, I had written an essay on insecurity as a sort of core tenant or feature of capitalism for a magazine called Logic, that is a progressive tech criticism magazine. And it was a piece that just left me thinking that I had more to say and that there was more to explore. Um, so it was kind of in my metaphorical ideas drawer. <laughs> and so when the CBC team invited me to give the Massey lectures, you know, I said, okay, this is the one idea that's sort of calling to me. Um, and they provided you know, just incredible sounding boards as I, I crafted um, first the chapters and then the lectures. Um, and it was something, you know, the theme too felt appropriate because as you know, it was going to reach radio listeners, right? So CBC is a lot like NPR. The idea that I was going to connect, to have the chance to connect with people as they were driving to work, <laughs> driving home from work, taking a jog, taking a walk, right? I, it had to, I had to find a theme that was sort of 
immediate, right? That mm -hmm. spoke to them on a visceral level. And, and so insecurity also seemed like it could do that, that I could kind of cut through the noise of the day and maybe talk big ideas, talk economics, talk philosophy, talk politics, but also be like, hey, I'm also talking to you. Good on the CBC for having this lecture series and making, um, you know, ideas possible. I'm not sure we have something similar in the U.S. I guess we have like in institutions like, you know, the Academy who have uh, featured speakers. And that's you're yeah. you're going to be coming to uh, Madison virtually next week. And uh, we'll share more about that. But I can't think of kind of a national program that's also such a cultural touch point. So that's that's very cool. So. We've mentioned the term insecurity, and this is uh, the central kind of defining lens. Uh, that's the topic of your talks and of your book. Um, this term insecurity, you, you really argue that there are two kinds of insecurity. And the first is existential insecurity. And, and that's sort of something that's innate and that indeed we can all relate to. Um, you also draw on ancient philosophy to kind of illustrate how that's always been a feeling uh, to humans and and innate in society. Describe this first kind of insecurity that I think we're all sort of familiar with. Absolutely. I mean, my position is that insecurity is constitutive, foundational to what it means to be human, because we are born needing care and we need care throughout our lives. I mean, most in a, in a more pronounced way in periods of illness, right, or old age, but we're all um, dependent and interdependent beings. And so this, I, this what I call existential insecurity is, is I think, really foundational. Um, and one thing I point out, going back to some sort of uh, uh, Roman philosophy, is the fact that the word care, cura, C-U-R-A, is actually um, uh, the sort of root, etymological root of both insecurity and security. So cura, care is, the need for care is in those words. And so existential insecurity to me is, again, this sort of foundation to the, the human experience. And the question is, okay, how do we deal with that? Do we try to deny it <laughs> and run away from it and say, well, not me, I don't need care. I'm not interdependent. I'm not mm. dependent. I'm independent, you know, or do we actually say, wow, that's actually a basis of connection between us, right? Then none of us can actually go it alone. And so that insecurity, I think is, the question is, when we recognize it, which way, which way do we go? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, you start with a, a kind of the a Roman origin story, right? Which is Kira, and that's the, the title of your first first lecture. And uh, which is something that you always do you, you in your work. You draw on kind of thoughts from millennia ago and then apply it to now to very contemporary or um, holistic things. But um yeah, so so thank you for describing um, existential insecurity. I sort of wonder too, like it's not it's not something that we feel comfortable talking about. Like we see insecure as a sometimes dirty word or negative word. Um, I think kind of in classical liberalism too, we kind of think that you ought to be able to be your own person and and uh, combat the world without uh, support, bootstrap your way up. And so maybe that's kind of a cultural remnant here that that we just we don't talk about cultural insecurity or that concept. Oh, yeah. It's laden with shame, right? I mean, nobody mm. says, I feel insecure today. And you go, congratulations, <laughs> right? I mean, it's it's seen as something that you want to flee from, that you want to get away from. So we we think 
you know, we want secure people. We talk about secure attachments and security is good. So part of the project of this, this book is, well, also, you know, challenging us to rethink what, what security would actually entail. Is security a kind of defensive, um, uh, independent, right? Autonomous space, something that we can achieve through, I don't know, working out or hoarding possessions or getting rich or something like that, or, yeah. uh, you know, is it, or is it something that actually we achieve in concert with others by recognizing our fundamental vulnerability and caring for each other? So there's, I, I try to propose a kind of collaborative, uh, cooperative type of security, but absolutely, you know, in, insecurity is, is stigmatized and it's, it's painful, right? I mean, it, it's hard to sometimes, it's not like, that's why we have existentialist philosophy. You know, that's why we have religion, right? Because some, facing our own mortality, our own vulnerability isn't, um, a, you know, a walk in the park. Right, right. Um, cool. So, okay, we, we, we've defined this first term, right? Which is a, a, a big, big lens through which uh, we all kind of see the world. Um, but you take it a step further and describe a second kind of insecurity that's produced by our modern world, that's produced by capitalism. And you call that manufactured insecurity. So tell us about the second type of insecurity, which is maybe not so positive. Right. Not so positive, but also not something we can, uh, sorry, not something that we should just accept. Right. So mm. existential insecurity is just going to be here. I mean, I, there are, I, I mean, and I would say the Silicon Valley billionaires who are trying to achieve uh, immortality are actually fleeing from the challenge existential insecurity poses. Right. It's yeah. one way of pathologically coping. <laughs> not me. I'm not going to, you guys are going to die, but not me. That, um, that's an interesting explanation um, of space travel. I like it. Right, right. I'm going to go, I'm leaving this planet because it's, you know, I can see that it's imperiled, but instead of sticking around to help, I'm going to flee from it. Um, so yes, manufactured insecurity is something I think we shouldn't work to accept. Uh, it's something that is imposed on us to facilitate power and profit, to facilitate the accumulation of power and profit. And we see this, you know, the example I give it at the beginning, and this is just one example of, of many is advertising. Mm -hmm. You know, no advertisement is ever gonna say, hey, you're okay, you're, you're actually fine, but the world is messed up, the world needs changing. No, ads will always play on your vulnerabilities, play on your insecurities, and try to suggest that actually the way to feel better is to buy more stuff. So capitalism thrives on bad feelings, just on that basic kind of consumer level. Um, but I think that we can zoom out and see that phenomenon more broadly, right? So in the in the ways that uh, US society denies people, you know, access to healthcare, access to stable housing, um, and people's precarity and poverty are profit centers. I see this in my work at the Debt Collective, where we organize debtors. I mean, you know, debt. Your one of our stock phrases is "your debt is someone else's asset," right? Your uh, your financial struggles, the fact that you had to put a healthcare bill on a credit card or take out a student loan to get an education, is working to somebody else's advantage. They're actually making money off of that. So, I can't summarize everything here, but I go through the history of sort of the beginnings of capitalism <laughs> and look at how uh, actually manufacturing insecure, manufacturing insecurity is actually very foundational to the development of our competitive economic system. And I think this is really important because we tend to talk about capitalism in terms of inequality and the fact that there are the rich and the poor and, and, uh, the haves and the have nots. Um, but to, 
sorry, but to get inequality into the incredible state it's in, you know, I think insecurity was sort of the motor that that helped propel that inequality. Um, so I just I think there's something useful uh, in terms of ad- adding to our analysis of the economic paradigm that we're all living in. Yeah, I want to ask you about the word itself, insecurity. You have an interesting tidbit that that word was kind of first introduced uh, around what century? So in the sort of 17th century, so right as market society is, you know, forming, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of late in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, insecurity, the word begins to take on its modern meaning. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And so that's interesting because security, as I point out, is an ancient word, Um, comes from the word securitas in Latin, which was something Stoic philosophers talked a lot about. Um, And in the ancient world, security really was thought of as as a mental state. It was really about having a kind of equanimity or internal calm so you could navigate life's troubles. And so it was individualistic. uh, but as uh, we enter the modern era, security becomes something else. Security becomes something that is also connected to physical security, um, to public order. Um, and it's taken up by uh, philosophers in the liberal political tradition as a kind of uh, fundamental um, value of um uh, a well-ordered society, right? So security sort of shifts in meaning over the centuries, right? And it, it takes on that new meaning right as the word insecurity um, is coming into common usage in English. Yeah. yeah, this is really fascinating. This is also something that you do in your work. You analyze language and kind of the origins of it. Um, you did that in your uh, work on democracy and the paradoxes therein. Um, and, and we're doing it here. Hey, um, this is a good time to remind folks that Astra Taylor is our guest right ha- right now here on A Public Affair. She's a writer, filmmaker, and organizer, and she's been at work thinking publicly about insecurity as the defining feature of our time. It's through a series of lectures called The Massey Lectures put on by the CBC. Also, a good note to let you know that you can find all these online for free. And there's also a companion book. And Astra Taylor will be giving a call next week or giving a talk next week, uh, Tuesday the 13th through the Havens Wright Center for Social Justice. Um, Meanwhile, you can ask Astra Taylor a question now by calling us here at 608-256-2001. That's 608-256-2001. Go ahead and pass your question on to Jade, our producer, and we'll patch you through and you can talk to Astor Taylor, which is a really cool thing to get to do. Uh, so give us a call, 608-256-2001. Um, Astor Taylor, I, we were talking about manufactured insecurity, which, by the way, is that is that an ode to Noam Chomsky a little bit? You know, we talked it, about manufacturing consent and, um, you know, it, that all centered on advertising and you brought up advertising and you mentioned reading his book when you, his Massey lecture. Um, is that intentional? I think it was just more of a subconscious nod, okay. right? Because I was sort of thinking, I was like, oh, I need to name these two types of insecurity and okay, what what should they be? And mm. yeah, I think that part of that, why that um, that word appealed was was because of its sort of Chomskyan associations, right? Manufacturing consent. Um, yeah, that sense, you know, that, that things are not neutral, that yeah. they're constructed uh, with a, a political agenda. 
Um, certainly, and the fact that he was a previous Massey lecturer helped the, helped make that seem all the more apt. Yeah. Um, so, so we're talking about this term, right? Manufactured insecurity. Uh, the idea that um, you know capitalism is creating these these insecurities. Um, it's an interesting way, as you mentioned, to talk about inequality, right? One thing mm. that I don't usually see in discussions about capitalism or inequality, um, you know, the stark concentration of wealth. Um, I don't usually see descriptions of the lived reality that goes along with inequality, right? You talk about the feelings that go along with being um, insecure, financially insecure, and like the rush of adrenaline when your rent is due. And I think we all kind of have those feelings and it's something that we don't talk about that has a real cumulative effect on our health on our well-being um as you know living a good life in general um and these ideas come from your work as you mentioned in the debt collective where you invited people to tell their stories about about um having debt owing things um being in this constant state of insecurity so i'm wondering if you could talk about how your previous work current work has influenced this idea as well I'm someone who just can't ever really separate the realm of theory from the realm of practice. Yeah. I think they go together and, the, and to me, they just belong together because I think you learn as much from doing and trying to put your ideas into practice as you do from reading and studying um, what's on the page or what, what great thinkers have thought. Uh, and so I'm someone who's very much drawn to issues of social and economic justice and democracy. And you see that in all of my in all of my work, um, and then alongside that, I have been organizing with the Debt Collective, and you know we think a lot about inequality at the Debt Collective. We think a lot about the fact that millions and millions of people have negative net wealth. <laughs> well, the number of billionaires keeps growing. We've got billionaires trying to be trillionaires, um, and uh, and you know, but it's not, it's not something that you can just capture in cold, hard statistics. I mean, when we talk about inequality, that tells us, okay, there's this many people in the lowest income quintile. There's this many people in the upper, you know, these, this amount of uh, income or wealth defines the 1%, this amount of income or wealth defines the 99%. But what, what I realized organizing is that when we're talking about these things and trying to get people into formation mm -hmm. <laughs> to challenge power, Oh, there's a lot of emotion happening. There's a lot of shame and stigma around being poor, being materially insecure. Uh, and so financial issues are always about feelings and economics are always about emotions. And I think there's something, instead of denying that and th thinking, oh, just the facts, <laughs> you know, let's just get to the statistics. It's like, no, let's actually talk about that. Let's talk about um, this pervasive economic anxiety because what's the fact of the matter is um, that it's not, it, it's people who, you know, on paper look like they're doing okay or they're doing better than a lot of people. But given the way our economy and our society is structured, they're still anxious, right? You know, in this in this country, an, a medical emergency can tip a family from solvency and security into precarity, even homelessness. I mean, bankruptcy is one of the met, um, bankruptcy often due to medical debt is one of the leading drivers. Of, of foreclosure um, in this country. And so, uh, you know, I, I I feel like being in these communities of, of debtors trying to organize, you know, did kind of teach me a lot. And I tried to reflect on some of that, some of those insights and imbue this book with them. Um, and so insecurity, you know, one thing I say, um, or 
one way of sort of thought to describe this is that inequality encourages us to look up and down at the sort of astonishing gap between the incredibly affluent and the indigent and insecurity encourages us to look sideways Mm -hmm. to say okay who's who else is feeling this way (laughs) we might not be in exactly the same financial position we might not occupy exactly the same position on that income graph but wow this is making this is you know but you're insecure and i'm insecure maybe we have something in common maybe there's something here to organize around so you know that i feel like I, I do write these sort of philosophical <laughs> books where I have a lot of intellectual fun and I do my etymology and I find my ancient philosophers who I like, but I'm, I am writing them as an organizer because ultimately it's like, okay, yeah, how do we, what do we do with this? How do we actually change the things we're describing? Because it's really easy to narrate the problems and it's actually easy to narrate the solutions, but getting from A to B, man, that's the hard part. Yeah. Statistics are not uh, altogether a powerful motivating motivating force, right? Even if you hear it and you recognize that you're one of that statistic, it doesn't quite resonate as uh, hearing someone else going through the same experience, you know, getting groceries and being like, oh, I don't have enough money to, you know, am I going to overdraft my bank account? I think that's something that we can all much more... Uh, identify with right at one point in their our lives if not our entire lives um, and understand and help motivate and um, you know that it really is a this definition of insecurity rather than inequality is more expansive and inclusive um, and it also feels like a solution to the um, maybe this is not not entirely uh maybe a little cynical, but it feels like a solution to the thought terminating uh, pattern of like trauma Olympics, right? Of, you know, I know I'm not the worst off, but I still feel like I'm scrambling. I still feel like I'm just getting by. And it's not that that like doesn't have its place. Like we all, you know, have things that we're really negatively impacted by, right? Um, And those are intensified by all sorts of kind of um, deep inequities in our society of, you know, socioeconomic background and race and gender and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, it still kind of misses the point uh, to me. I'm wondering if you have a thought on that. And then we have a caller to bring on. Yeah. I mean, I, I have, I say something very much to that point. I, you know, I say insecurity reserves its harshest edge for the people who are dispossessed, who are disadvantaged, who are structurally discriminated against, right? I mean, we, we can't ignore the raced and gendered uh, dimensions of inequality, 100, you know, but I am trying to create a, a frame that allows us to um, uh, connect and find commonalities without erasing our differences, right? That And that's, that's what solidarity is to me. It's to say, okay, we're not exactly the same, but we can recognize enough in what we're going through that even though I might be, middle class, I would still really benefit from universal health care or a universal basic income or child care that was publicly provided um, or uh, more secure uh, retirement in old age, right? Because the way our society is structured with manufactured insecurity at its center, you know, no one feels they can ever rest. No one feels they have enough when there's no ceiling and no floor. Nobody is safe from that gnawing sense of, ex- of insecurity. It's what the wonderful uh, writer and social critic Barbara Ehrenreich called fear of falling, right? When there's no safety net, when it's just tattered and inadequate, everyone's afraid to fall because we have so much to lose. And that 
those structural conditions, I think, have psychic ramifications. People are more intent, more inclined, right, to feel like, well, I need to protect what's mine. I need to shore up my own private holdings. Um, uh, you know, I need to compete more uh, intensely. Um, when I think, you know, the better solution is to organize and to try, try to create conditions that uh, make us more materially secure. And we know public policy can do that. We know that that's actually a realistic goal. Yeah. There, there are some really interesting corollaries that I want to get to. But first, we do have a caller. You can be our next caller at 608-256-2001. You're listening to A Public Affair. We're speaking with Astra Taylor, and uh, she's a writer, filmmaker, uh, public intellectual, if you'd like, organizer. And you can uh, call in and ask her a question. Again, that's 608-256-2001. Brad is on the air. Good afternoon, Brad. Hi. Uh, very thoughtful provoking um i look to the last hundred years in the united states the the propaganda that they've used to create uh insecurities and to harm people um it's like we have a system where the the people who the, have the consolidated money don't have the same rules they're kind of above the law um do you have any ideas on how we get to a place where the money is more regulated, regulated in the systems around us with the, in the legal system and all of it. So Brad asking for solutions, Astra Taylor. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I agree with your, your premise, right? I mean, essentially um, we have a, a situation where the people with the money rule, we live, I mean, and political scientists have studied this and said, oh, wow, you know, the United States is no longer a functioning democracy. It's an oligarchy. And ol ol oligarchy is the name for a system in which the rich hold the power. Um, you know, I think you're also getting a, a, a way of defining capitalism. Capitalism is, is a system where capital rules, where regardless of who possesses it, the logic of profit accumulation, of money having to seek investment in places where it can make more money is the driving logic, right? Um, uh, and the, you know, there are ways to to uh, regulate financial um, mechanisms. There are ways of distributing politically political power more equally. But what we have to do is organize to to win those solutions. So I'm, you know, I'm very heartened. There's a lot of bad stuff happening in the world, but I'm very heartened by the revival of the labor movement. I think that's one of the most critical things happening in this moment. That's why I've spent so much time organizing with the Debt Collective, which is a way of bringing people into a kind of economic justice uh, movement, people who would probably not have the chance to join a labor union because they're not at a job where that's an option or because they live in a right-to-work state or whatever. Uh, joining tenants unions as a way of exerting power on landlords. So I just think that's um, there are lots of ways of regulating capital, um, you know, and making our for, you know, so reducing the power of money in that sense, but also, you know, making small d democracy more robust, right? So that the many, <laughs> uh, the majority of people who aren't rich have more of a political voice, for example, by, you know, making it easier to cast a ballot. Um, by uh, making um, election day a national holiday, for example. So we we know again we know this we know a lot of good solutions. What we have to do is put some of our our time, our precious time, into organizing with other people to fight for those things over the long haul. 
Astrid Taylor, there are a lot of solutions that have been proposed by you and by other organizers, and it feels like um, there are thoughts that or ideas, solutions that maybe five, ten years ago, they might have been treated as a lot more kind of radical than they are now. And so maybe there is a little room for hope and optimism here. Um, you see that with all sorts of things. Uh, but in this case, you you are with the Debt Collective. You're a co-founder of the Debt Collective and, um, you know, the movement to cancel student loans and release people from uh, kind of a lifetime of not being able to own a house or do anything else, right, but pay off their loans, um, that is becoming a lot more of a potential reality, a more accepted um, thing in the con- political conversation entirely. So, um, you know, there have been some updates here. The Biden administration has tried to uh, take some of your suge- suggestions and cancel student debt. The, the actual, you know, doing of that has been a little bit uh, complicated, but uh, do you want to share, you know, where you started five, 10 years ago and where we are now? Yeah. And and really just to make the point that, that you're making, which is that it is actually impressive what a small number of organized people can do. I think that's the point. So, you know, the Debt Collective has the position that we do not live beyond our means. We're denied the means to live, right? That people are forced to debt finance things like healthcare, education, housing, because those are not public goods in this country. In countries where there's universal healthcare, you don't have medical debt as a mass phenomenon. When we have education as a true public good, people don't have to debt finance it, right? There, there are countries where higher education is not only tuition free, but young people are given stipends so they can concentrate on their studies, right? What does that mean for them? Well, that means also they're graduating without debt. So maybe if they studied law, they can be uh, someone who serves the public interest instead of going to work at a corporation where they'll make up make enough of a salary to pay back their $400,000 in law school loans. So um, so we're aiming at a, a radical uh, reorganization of the economy. I mean, radical in the sense just that it's different than what we have. I don't actually think it's that radical to say we should have public goods. Um, and... You know, uh, and we believe that organizing around debt is one of the levers that working people have. Uh, and so we are, uh, we have been, you know, very responsible for the Biden administration canceling the debt they have. I mean, there's, I've written a lot about the problems with it. People can look at my writing. But I, I what I do want to just remind people of is what a laughable the idea, what a laughable idea it was to the majority of people, even progressives, even people on the left, that the government would cancel a penny of student debt when we first began to raise it. I mean, when we started saying we want the government, we want the Department of Education to cancel student loans, we were laughed at. <laughs> it was like, it's never going to happen. And, you know, billions and billions, tens of billions, something like, actually, the exact number for the Biden administration is $139 billion of student loans have been canceled, you know, since that administration took office. It's not as far as we want to go. But honestly, I think if you told me five years ago or six years ago, I'd be like, really? <laughs> They're actually doing it? Um, and we we gained that ground through a combination of you know grassroots organizing, creative legal and policy strategies, changing the conversation, changing the narrative, challenging the narrative and saying, why is why are debtors ashamed when all they were doing was trying to get an education and do what they've been told, right? So challenging the kind of mainstream narrative and then also doing things that were militant. We organized debt strikes and said, hell no, we can't pay, we won't pay, you know, inspired by labor unions that used the strike um, as, as one of their 
you know, most powerful tools. Um, so that's just one example of just a tiny kooky. I'm going to say we're kooky. We're smart, but we're kooky group of people saying, you know, we don't care if this is reasonable. We think it's right. And we're going to actually just stick with it doggedly for years. So I think hopefully that can give people a bit of hope, right? That, um, you know, you can actually make inroads, but, but you have to get organized to do so. I think Madison, the Madison audience is a very good audience to send that message to. There's plenty of activism and organizing um, in these kind of years-long campaigns. So I appreciate you sharing that message and congratulations on the things that you've been able to accomplish so far. Um, and the, you could take a number of things, right? You work in, in debt, and uh, but there, there are so many different things that we could um, you know, organize around in the same kind of way. Um, it's a good chance to remind you that, wow, we're how a quarter uh, or, or three quarters of the way into a public affair, uh, which you're listening to here on WORT Madison, your community radio station. Uh, we're speaking with Astra Taylor. Astra Taylor is a writer, filmmaker and organizer and our guest for this hour. You can still call in and ask a question of Astra Taylor. That's 608-256-2001, 608-256-2001. Astra Taylor, um, an interesting corollary to your idea, getting back to this idea of manufactured insecurity that's produced by this kind of capitalist structure that we have, um, is that there are things that we do individually because we want to be more secure and because they probably do in a way, make us more secure. But this actually ends up undermining our collective insecurity and making all of us more insecure. You give numerous examples of this, um, I, but I'll ask you to give us some. So, so give me some examples of this kind of phenomenon. Yeah, so many of the pathways to security are ultimately socially destructive. I mean, so you're encouraged, if you're lucky enough to have a job where you're offered benefits, you are encouraged to invest in your 401k. But often the things that you're making investments in are destructive to communities or to the planet, right? Maybe you're investing in fossil fuels, maybe you're investing in tech stock. Um, and so your security is then contingent, you know, on, um, on, uh, practices that are ultimately socially harmful. And we see this even in you know, news about big teachers' pensions that are invested in things like Uber. Um, it's, you know, because we do not have a universal retirement uh, as a matter of right, we have it as a system tied up in, in, in the marketplace. So I think that's one profound example. Um, we are told to, you know, amass property to, to, buy a house, you know, as, as one way of achieving um, some security, a semblance of the American dream. But what we're seeing right now in this incredibly overheated housing market is that, you know, it creates instability for, again, for the broader community, right? So you purchase a house and that makes you invested in the, the property value rising. <laughs> but what that means is all sorts of people can't afford to live in, um, uh, that community anymore people are pushed out uh and and that's the product of you know thinking about security as a kind of individual um good um as a good that's tied to the market uh and so again part of what i'm trying to do in this book is say okay let's well let's rethink security um as something that is socially provided uh that is pro provided on an equitable non-market basis so in one lecture i talk about social housing so non-market housing alternatives I talk about education as a as a right. I talk a lot about um, 
the workplace uh, and the importance of job and wage security and ultimately the importance of a, a basic income. You know, and lastly, I'll say that it's something I just mentioned. It's sort of if they had if the option had been there to give six lectures and not five, I think that what's missing from the book is an, a chapter on foreign policy. Mm. And I mentioned this in the beginning uh, uh, in terms of thinking, some thinking that was formative for me in terms of thinking about security. But international relations scholars talk about something called the security paradox. And this is essentially the dynamic of, you know, uh, military uh, mutually assured destruction, right? Like, well, you know, to enhance my security, I'm going to build up my weapons arsenal. But then, of course, what that's going to do is create instability and anxiety in my opponent who's going to do the same. And there's this kind of ratcheting effects, right? So a, a, an individual actor seeking their own security, you know, engages in an act that actually creates instability. Um, and, and so I think it's, you know, here we are uh, at a moment when we're seeing um, uh, the, the crisis uh, in Gaza, and we're seeing that kind of logic, right, of security through um, military force and vengeance, and the way that what ultimately this does is create a spiral where a lot of people, a lot of regular people suffer and lose. Yeah. Um, that's that's a lot, right? Um, it, yeah. And it, I think once you have this lens on, you can start to see it uh, kind of everywhere, right? This lens of insecurity. Um, another consequence of of rising insecurity, and or maybe we should say rampant insecurity, right, um, is in far right authoritarian movements. You talk about this as well. Uh, it is an election year, so mm-hmm. a presidential election year. Um, it kind of a lot going on. I'm wondering if you could. Um, you know, your, your thought is that uh, if you have insecurity um, in your daily life, maybe you look to, to, to the promise of security elsewhere. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah. I mean, this goes to that thing we were talking about at the beginning. It goes to the idea of existential insecurity, mm. <laughs> first off, which is on a sort of foundational level. Do you recoil from the idea of vulnerability? Do you recoil from the idea that you're interdependent? Uh, are you someone who is inclined to try to seek security in a defensive way? Um, you know, uh, do you see other people as a threat, especially other social groups, other people of other races, people of other nationalities? Or do you see people actually as your best protection, right? As solidarity, community building is the best source of security. Um, I mean, I think politically what we see, and this is hardly an original insight. I mean, I'll say two things. One is, you know, just the utility but the folly of a politics of fear, right? So we see politicians of all stripes using fear and anxiety and insecurity to sort of motivate voters, right? Um, so, you know, I, I insecurities, you know, I, I write a lot about the fact that it, um, uh, it can go both ways. It can be a conduit to the kind of solidarity and, and recognition of our shared vulnerability, but it can be easily exploited by authoritarians who are saying, yeah, you're afraid. Well, we're going to build a wall. <laughs> we're going to get rid of those professors who are teaching gender ideology to the students. Wisconsin you know, knows that well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, this is something that we're all f- familiar with. Um, and there's so much social science research to back up the fact that periods of instability and crisis um, uh, do uh, make people more susceptible to these authoritarian appeals 
And I think that's something we have to take really seriously. The flip side of that is that there's also social science and value research that shows that periods of material stability, material security, kind of stability and uh, more egalitarian conditions uh, do the opposite and make people more tolerant and open-minded. And so we, again, we cannot disconnect the economic and the emotional, right? Like yeah. if you're, and this is because um, insecurity is always forward-looking. This is one thing I didn't really mention. I mean, insecurity isn't just how are you doing now? A lot of people might be doing okay, but they're afraid. They're afraid mm -hmm. of what the future has in store, right? So they're they're looking forward and and feeling apprehensive and anxious. Um, and so I think the the authoritarian threat is really real. Um, uh, and authoritarians, I think, are on stronger footing when it comes to the politics of fear, right? Than liberals, <laughs> and that's why you know so we've got two parties in twenty twenty four: Democrats and Republicans. Um, and you know what I see there is two parties using insecurity to uh, galvanize their base, and in, you know instead of offering a positive vision of what security could be, how we could actually get out of this mess. And so that really worries me um, because I just think it it might win an election in the short term, but the political dividends are going to be pretty negative long term. Oh, there's so much more we could say, but we we are sort of running out of time. And there are there are other questions that I, I do want to ask you. Um, so as we kind of wrap up here, and this is kind of your last chance to ask a question of Astra Taylor, that's 608-256-2001. You can get it in a, under the wire here. Um, but Astra Taylor, um, you know, I've got to think that in the year 2023, which is when you, uh, you know, delivered these lectures across Canada, um, perhaps the reason why thinking about the world in terms of security and insecurity as structures might be so poignant is because we all kind of went through a thing together. That thing is called COVID. And because of its suddenness and the way that it kind of permeated our everyday reality for years and made us feel insecure for years, it was sort of difficult not to see these structures breaking down, uh, you know, advice from federal government that was wrong, economic supports that weren't enough, social supports that we didn't have, um, you, the realization that your risk level is not other people's risk level and, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of devaluation of empathy there. Um, I sort of think that this is the, the right moment to be talking about this because the, the COVID pandemic made it more difficult to ignore on a day-to-day -day level, um, you know, insecurities than something like our climate emergency which even though that is happening, that is a big deal. That's kind of the greatest existential threat. Um, we don't, that kind of chips away and it's a slow burning thing in our everyday life. It was hard to do that with COVID. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. I think it's a profound question and we're still untangling mm. what COVID means. It's still with us. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do think that it also, you know, it, it absolutely created um, conditions of insecurity right? And we saw some people flee from that. I mean, to go back to that metaphor, right? We saw some people like, well, no, not me. I'm not vulnerable, right? right? This is, oh, the pandemic is over. Actually, the pandemic was a pandemic. There's actually a different crisis happening, um, you know, and and taking solace in, in a conspiracy that, that would enable them to not face the fact of kind of our shared vulnerability um, and, and, and not uh, and unfortunately, it makes it all the harder to take constructive steps that would address um, not just the inequities that were exposed by COVID, 
but also to prevent the next pandemic, which as I, you know, I talk quite a bit in the fourth lecture about all of the risks on the horizon in terms of um, other zoonotic illnesses. So I, th I, th I think we're very much still in the trauma. Um, and I guess the, the optimist in me is, you know, that I, I, I still hope that some kind of post-traumatic growth is possible here, right? And that we have to create spaces where we can talk about it, we can grieve the experience uh, and the people who were lost and left behind, um, and that hopefully at least enough people can learn the, the right lessons or good lessons from it. But absolutely it colored the writing of this book, the thinking behind it, um, you know, and, and in this sense, you know, I, I also just want to take this moment to say, you know, what I'm getting at to me, I feel like I'm almost just putting name a name on something, manufactured insecurity, existential insecurity on something we all feel and that other people have written about or other groups have have kind of manifested. I mean, there's a lot of there's a big intellectual debt in this book to disability movements mm. who have thought really critically about disability um, and the need for care to feminist movements that have thought a lot about care and uh, I criticized um, the economy on those grounds. So there's just a lot of, um, uh, yeah, I think there's a, an attempt in the book to kind of synthesize these different thoughts, um, many of which have been swirling around and weren't just invented by me out of the ether. Well, you are a really good synthesizer, and that's, I think, why a, a big uh, big plus of reading and listening to you. Um, and on that kind of note, I wanted to end with, um, you know, you've talked about the role of curiosity many times. You do many different things. You make films, you write books, you play the accordion in bands, and you go on tour. You do many different things. Um, but I, I just wanted to share while we're being vulnerable, uh, I wanted to share how I came across your work, which was in my late teens. So first I watched your documentary about um, philosopher Slavoj Žižek many times. I thought it was hilarious um, in, in a good way. Uh, the part where he talks about Stalin on the wall gets me every time. Um, if you know what I'm, what I'm talking about, you, you know what I'm talking about. But um, the first time your name solidified in my head, going back to curiosity, was when um, I was a freshman in college. I was explaining to this kind of older grad student that, you know, my mom had this radical notion of unschooling me for most of my childhood until I hit high school. And that gave me a lot of curiosity about the world, but it didn't do wonders for me in other areas, like understanding certain structures uh, or under, you know, frankly, my math skills wasn't great entering college. And so he just kind of turned to me and, you know, I was complaining and he smiled and he said, hey, you might not get it now, but she, your, your mom gave you a real gift. There are some really cool people who had that kind of upbringing. Have you heard of Astra Taylor? And so that's Aww. where I came across her work. Oh, and <laughs> that's so cool. So you were unschooled till, till high school too? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, a lot wow. of things that you describe about, um, you wow. know, having time to read. I basically grew up in a library, but also, um, Wow. You know, being bored and staring at the wall is also a really important <laughs> part of that. Um, so, yeah, I just. That's uh, so great. I love that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, for, for listeners who don't know, unschooling is this idea of, of kind of unleashing your kids curiosity by not sending them to conventional school. And it's very romantic. And obviously you're, you know, I think we're politically um, obviously have a lot of alignment. I think the thing is for people who are also concerned about public goods and equality and um shared uh systems including systems of of knowledge production and reception you know unschooling is i i don't find it to be um a solution right, right. Uh, it's a scalable thing but to me it really was a big gift to be able to have that autonomy and to have a kind of 
critical distance from normal schooling and grades and um, uh, and you know, I didn't have any pressure to succeed at the normal academic hierarchy, which I think was probably um, good for me. So I just love that and that that makes my day. Uh, and you know, curiosity is it's it's the best, you know and and ultimately, um, it really is, I think, what what drives all of my all of my dabbling. It's just like the world is so interesting. I want to know more about it. And then I get to share what I learn with other folks. And so thank you for inviting me on this show to share with your listeners. It's a big honor. Of course, it's an honor to have you. And, um, you know, you were organizing back when you were a kid um, <laughs> and true. being unschooled. So um, it, there was something there. Um, well, Astra Taylor, thank you so much again for joining me here on A Public Affair. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Cool. Thank you. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. Her previous books include Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She writes regularly for major publications, has directed several documentaries, including Zizek, What is Democracy, and Examined Life. She's toured with the band Neutral Milk Hotel and co-founded The Debt Collective, a debt relief advocacy group. Uh, a debtor's union. Her series of 2023 Massey Lectures, what we've been talking about today, is called The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. There's still plenty more to delve into, so I urge you to uh, check out the companion book or uh, check out those Massey Lectures. They're free to watch, free to listen to um, online through the CBC. Astor Taylor will also be giving a talk at the Havens Wright Center for Social Justice next Tuesday, one week from tomorrow. That's noon to 1.30 p.m. on February 13th. You can find more at the Haven Wright HavensWrightCenter.wisc.edu. Um, that's Havens Wright with W R I G H T Center.wisc.edu. We'll link to it online. All right, we have to run, but before we do that, I want to thank our producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, our engineer, Andrew Thomas, our receptionist, Amy Lutsky, your regular host, Douglas Haynes, will be out for a few weeks here, uh, but next week, WORT's Sarah Gabler is going to take the mic. Stick around this afternoon for an edition of Madison Book Beat. Just after one, our host, Andrew Thomas, is going to talk. Talk. Is there God after Prince? I don't know. Uh, this has been a public affair. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. That's all coming up right here after the BBC here on Community Radio, WORT Madison. I'm Shelly Pittman. Thanks for joining me. Don't go away. Like